Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Also Sport Podcast World Championship Showdown Special Edition. We talk about whether it will be Nico Rosberg or Lewis Hamilton who is crowned in Abu Dhabi on Sunday. We're just a few days away from the World Championship decider in Abu Dhabi, with Nico Rosberg looking to close out his first title. For those keeping score, this is the 29th time the title has gone down to the wire since the inaugural year of the World Championship in 1950, and history is very much on the side of Rosberg in his 12-point lead. A top three finish will guarantee him the title, regardless of what Lewis Hamilton does. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport, and joining me today is features editor Scott Mitchell. Scott. What's your favourite F1 title decider? That I can remember, 2007, but the one I would have loved to have been able to witness was 86. Why is that? Tell us more. Because it's the one that everyone assures me was the greatest F1 title decider of all time. But unfortunately, as people often like to point out, far too young to have experienced something like that. Yeah, you are too young and you, and you should be ashamed. Fortunately, I can just about remember that one. I wasn't especially old at that point, but uh, it's uh, yeah, ingrained in the memory. And Glenn Freeman? Autosport.com editor, what's your favourite? I think this is going to be an obvious one, given your well-known love of Jack Villeneuve. Yeah, I'm a little bit ashamed that when you put this question to me earlier to give it some thought, I said, yeah, I'll get back to you, when obviously it's 1997. I am, I am a Jack Villeneuve fan, but also championship rivals colliding at the final race, and the race was really good up to then as well, so I think even non-Villeneuve fans should like it. Maybe not just Schumacher fans, though. 2016, we'll be hoping for another classic. It's not quite set up in the way you would want it to be for a kind of winner-takes-all finale. Obviously, we've been here before. In 2014, Nico Rosberg went to the Abu Dhabi finale needing Mercedes teammate Lewis Hamilton to have a disaster to win the title. The boots on the other foot, or the boots on the other Schumacher, as Murray Walker once said, this year in that Nico Rosberg is the guy in the box seat. There's been a lot of talk about how each driver should approach this. What do you reckon, Glenn? Not sure I'm the best person to come to for this one. Um, I was involved in a title decider my own once in karting and I was in a similar position to Rosberg, tried to win the race and crashed. Um, so, you know, Rosberg keeps saying he's taking it one race at a time. Finally, he's telling the truth because there's only one race left. He claims he's going to go for the win. 
I haven't seen much evidence of him going for the win in the last few races. He's been getting the second places that he needs. I suspect that if Mercedes are dominant, as you would expect, and Red Bull aren't too close, he can do the same again. It certainly seems to be odds on that he can just cruise around, finish second, that's a par result, and, and he's got the title. And that's what he's done the last three rounds. But I think you're probably best placed of all three of us to talk about how cruising around trying to win a title doesn't work because you were in the garage in 2008 uh, at McLaren when they basically did everything they could to try and lose the championship for Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, I'll hasten to add I wasn't responsible for the uh, for the race strategy there. I was there for uh, for what might be termed an atmosphere piece in Autosport magazine. Obviously, it was a great story. But yeah, McLaren had a good position. Lewis Hamilton was, I think, seven points ahead of Felipe Massa, so they could afford to be conservative. Fifth place was enough. They took a fairly steady approach to it. Having said that, they did bring significant updates to the race, so they were aggressive technically. And then it's just one of those races that started to unravel a little bit and you ended up with Hamilton starting the last lap sixth and then passing Timo Glock slickshod Toyota at the last minute which was an absolutely sensational finish but it does show how if you use up some of that safety margin by definition you haven't got that safety margin for when something goes wrong so Nico Rosberg can finish third but the last thing he needs to do is go into this race and think I'll cruise around behind a Red Bull and finish third. I guess the difference between maybe Hamilton's situation in 08 and Rosberg's situation this time is a the competitive order was much closer then, so McLaren didn't have as much margin to play with as Rosberg probably has in a Mercedes at the moment. Yeah, Rosberg's not going to be passed by a Toro Rosso in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. You can, you unlikely, can that. unlikely. Um, but also, obviously, we had changeable conditions, which made it a lot more difficult on that famous day in Brazil. We're probably not going to have that in Abu Dhabi. I think with, uh, with Rosberg, the, the other thing he needs to avoid is maybe focusing on the smaller things in, in his driving. If, if he starts driving consciously rather than subconsciously almost that's when you could have mistakes creep in I think that's one of the things he's been trying to avoid with this you know this method of focusing one race at a time is it stops him getting carried away thinking about other things rather than the, the job at hand and I guess the big thing is whether or not the Red Bulls or or the Ferraris are going to be close enough to to take advantage if he if he does make a mistake it's the old thing for Rosberg about objective focus versus process focus he's got to try and keep himself focused on the process but that's going to be incredibly difficult this is why strange things happen in title deciders and people make misjudgments because the pressure is is intense you know Nico Rosberg is on the brink of achieving the pinnacle no matter what happens to him after this weekend if he wins the world championship that will be the greatest achievement of his sporting career so the the pressure is, is going to be untold and this is when things start to go wrong when you start second guessing yourself and and making errors but yeah you're right one of the things Hamilton needs is for most likely a Red Bull to be in the picture ideally both the Red Bulls because then if Rosberg does make a mistake potentially you can slip behind them that's that's one of the paths for victory for Lewis Hamilton the other one and the more likely one is Rosberg has reliability problems as incidentally he did in the 2014 title decider because we're at the end game is this the sort of position where Hamilton could try and back Rosberg into the Red Bulls if they're close is that sort of thing possible? And should he try that sort of thing? I wondered, He's got nothing to lose, surely. Yeah, I wondered whether or not, like with Lewis, he just needs to sort of focus on his own race because was it in, in, in 2010 when, um, when Weber and Red Bull got caught out, sort of maybe trying to cover off the wrong guys in the end in, in the title fight. It's obviously a little bit different because he's only got one title rival. But if Lewis is focused so much on backing Rosberg up, is there a possibility that something could shake out whereby he ends up getting lit, uh, jumped by a Red Bull, for example, on, on strategy, that sort of thing, you know? You can, you got to just control the areas you can control and then get on with it. And maybe trying to back his teammate up is a bit too much of a risky game. He just needs to bolt at the front and hope that help comes from elsewhere. Well, he's been bolting at the front for the last few races, though, hasn't he? And the only time any misfortune happened to a Mercedes while he's been doing that was to his own car in Malaysia. So I can, I can see why he might just want to keep Rosberg in range of a few of the other drivers that are chasing. Or if Lewis controls the pace, there's also that thing of, other drivers can't necessarily find a pit stop window to drop into in the midfield. Um, maybe we're looking into it too much and maybe Lewis will just think, I just want to win. I just want to finish the year with all these wins on the bounce, having proven my point that is when it's when both cars are reliable, I'm the faster Mercedes driver. There is the danger of taking your eye off the ball a little bit and looking too much at the championship pitch. Obviously, as Scott said in 2010, when Alonso pitted to cover the early stop from, from Weber because they were so obsessed with watching what, what Weber was doing. Obviously, they were thinking less about how do we get the best possible result out of this race, and they were thinking more how do we win the championship, and it went spectacularly wrong. But wasn't it also because there was tyre graining 
which everyone was suffering at the time. Weber and Alonso reacted to the graining and to each other. Web- Vettel Weber just stayed out basically to do something different and the graining cleared up. Wasn't that Web- what happened? Weber basically pitted early because he was having a bit of a mare. He'd already glanced the wall. And I think they were just trying to try something different set of tyres. And Alonso seemed to react to that. I'm told that all the strategies they had, Ferrari had planned for that race, were focused purely on Weber, which was a mistake given Vettel won the title. Unbelievable, really. There was this phase where the tyres grained and you had a few laps where they slowed down and it just happened to coincide with that. Hirohida Hamashima, who was then head of Bridgestone, uh, said to me after the race that actually this was down to the previous year's Ferrari not being very good and chewing through its tyres. They didn't realise that you had this graining phase and then the tyres came back, if you like. So you had this phase where Ferrari thought, oh, we'll go a little bit early, but the tyres are going anyway, so it's probably okay. But then it just went spectacularly wrong when the tyres came back for the front runners. I'd I'd like to change my answer to the opening question of what's my favourite title decider. I've just remembered how good 2010 was. <laughs> 2010 was good, wasn't it, with, Al- with Alonso behind Petrov for, for all those laps. But going back to the, the point Glenn made about backing someone up, it's I'd consider it to be a little bit of a high-risk strategy because I'm not sure where it's necessarily going to get get you. I think if you were talking about two different teams, you could have a second car to be a spoiler. You could start looking at backing people up, but I'm not really sure whether Hamilton's going to get anywhere out of doing that. I almost feel like he's better off just saying, look, I'm having a straightforward race if he's ahead. And remember, Rosberg has always outqualified Hamilton when they've been teammates at Abu Dhabi. So it's no foregone conclusion. It's going to be as we've seen in the previous three races. But I almost feel that Hamilton's best strategy is just to say, if he can, look, I'm having a clear race. And whether that's just behind Rosberg or up ahead, look, it's all going sensibly for me. The onus is on you to not blunder it. I almost feel if he backs up Rosberg, Rosberg's almost going to have more stuff to just concentrate on rather than just that thing of driving around, worrying things, something's going to fail, doing that, oh, don't make a mistake, don't make a mistake, don't make a mistake, and then suddenly you make a mistake. But if you make a mistake at Abu Dhabi, you don't hit anything. You just drive through some aqua-coloured tarmac, don't you? The, the one thing that maybe is a bit more in Lewis's control in terms of uh, trying to influence what happens on track with him and Rosberg is maybe we need, this is where we need to see the killer instinct that we think he's got that Nico doesn't on the first lap. Because where's the flashpoint? Uh, yes, Marina Circuit. Where's the the moment where if they go side by side or if they're quite close, Lewis can do a bit of a Austin turn one last year, Suzuka, that sort of thing, run him wide or put him in put him in a difficult position. Well, that is the flashpoint, and there are ways and means you can put another driver in a difficult position without it being wrong, shall we say? I think we've also seen that in those wheel to wheel situations, Hamilton is much better at what you might want to call the dark arts of racecraft than, than Rosberg is. You know, Rosberg tried it in Austria and made an absolute mess of it. Hamilton's got plenty of previous here of knowing just how to toe the line where you're not going to get in trouble for it, but you are maybe sort of pushing the limits a little bit. I think as well, we've, um, it, we were saying earlier about what Rosberg needs to focus on and, and, and whether or not he slips into that sort of mistake of thinking about things a bit too much and not just letting himself react naturally to a situation if he goes wheel to wheel with Lewis or it gets boxed in or something in the corner that it, going into turn one or, or into the hairpin or anything like that that's where you have that possibility where he suddenly becomes a bit jittery behind the wheel I think you know overreactions are probably the cause of more we see it on the on the road just in, when you're driving day to day overreactions are the cause of crashes aren't they when people don't read a situation right or they, or they panic that's that's an area where, where Rosberg's going to have to be, be quite careful and that's obviously a, a danger point for Rosberg, as we said, he's not necessarily the most natural driver in combat, shall we say, so he's kind of doubly likely to start second-guessing himself. And that's just what he wants to avoid, these scenarios where he has to think about things. He's been very sensible the last few races. Obviously, there was the point during the Brazilian Grand Prix at Interlagos when Verstappen passed him, and he was very careful not to get caught up with him. So he, he knows he's got that little bit of leeway, but you know, again, it's the usual thing. Strange things happen and, and mistakes can happen. You know, it was only a few years ago that Sebastian Vettel turned in on Bruno Senna on the first lap, had the collision, got collected. And by rights, he probably should have been out of the race. He was phenomenally lucky that That's that such impact, a hard hit, wasn't it? He, Vettel himself, I remember him saying at the Autosport Awards that he thought he was done for, but, you know, he got the car pointing in the right direction. Yeah, Nui said it was as damaged go. as the car could be and yeah. still continue to finish the race, which was probably played up a little bit for dramatic effect, but it kind of been far off. They, well, they were, they were getting photos on the pit wall they were looking at, you know, the exhaust had been damaged. There were all sorts of stuff that could have gone wrong there, so it was... Oh, I think I might have changed my mind again on the which my favourite title decider was. Scott's really good at this. Have you gone back to 1950 now? 
Nino Farina. Allegations that Alfa Romeo was favouring the Italian driver over the foreigner. Oh, that sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Which actually brings us to one of the other things, reliability. Now, when are they going to deploy the button on on Hamilton's engine? Well, that's that's a conspiracy question, isn't it? Of course, you understand why Hamilton's been frustrated this season. As of Mexico, I think the figure got from Mercedes was that there'd been 13 what they call major problems with Mercedes power unit packages, which are not necessarily in-race failures. Some of them weren't, aren't even failures and problems that you see. They can be rectified in other ways, but there have been 13 major ones, and Hamilton had six of them, which is just luck of the draw. Is or, that across the eight cars? That's across that the eight the cars, yeah, which, or bad luck of the draw, in fact. Obviously, people always say, well, Rosberg's due some unreliability, but actually that, that's not how it works. It's not one spoonful of reliability for you, one spoonful for the other one. You wouldn't expect it to be even. I think their engines are in a similar ballpark in terms of age. I don't think there's a massive disparity there. Neither's right near the end of the mileage life of their engine. So there's no reason for one or the other to have reliability problems. But the fact remains, the main chance Hamilton has of winning the World Championship is Rosberg having reliability problems. I think we've got to agree that that's the, that's the only thing that... Well, yeah, they go there expecting the to have a one-two, don't they? So, And the, the chances of a Mercedes reliability problem, as we've seen at times this year, and as we certainly saw in Malaysia, are higher when Red Bull or Ferrari are nearby and in the mix. So if the pressure's on from behind, Mercedes don't have a margin to look after the cars from a reliability standpoint. So what we really want to keep the drama, what, you know, I think we're all impartial here, I'd imagine, to keep the drama up, you want Red Bull and Ferrari in the mix, putting the pressure on, and then Mercedes, you know, they've got a lot, they've got a lot on their plates, basically, on the pit wall, and the drivers have got a lot to do in the cockpits. What we don't want is one of what you may say were the classic Mercedes races from the last three years where they just drive around first and second and Hamilton's got maybe two or three tenths a lap on Rosberg and we sit there for sort of however many laps it is waiting for somebody to break down or collide with a backmarker. It's most likely Mercedes will have a good advantage though Red Bull could be pretty handy around the Aston Marina circuit. There are plenty of, plenty of slow corners there although not necessarily the characteristics to get them to Monaco levels of performance, or obviously Dan Ricciardo got on pole. But but that's the interesting thing. I think it is Red Bull who are the most likely to be a problem. Obviously, we've got Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen, obviously, who showed he was quite happy to fight the Mercedes drivers in Interlagos. He did in Mexico as well. Do you remember that that lunge he sent down the inside of Rosberg? And that was the moment where I thought, if there's any point in this run-in where Rosberg hasn't been thinking one race at a time, surely it was at that point when a locked-up sideways red ball comes down the inside of you on the brakes. And I'd, I'd love to know what he was thinking at that point because surely the World Championship was flashing before his eyes whether he likes to admit it or not. But like you say, the great thing is that Toto Wolff phone calls or not, Max Verstappen is pre- prepared to fight whoever he ends up on the same piece of racetrack with. And I'd love to see a bit of that. And this weekend. And he's absolutely right too as well. This idea that people should keep out of the way in title deciders is is nonsensical. There's a race going on. Yeah, okay. You don't want people just for a laugh driving into people, but these are all professional drivers and that that will not happen anyway. In fact, if you're Max Verstappen, Daniel Ricciardo, Sebastian Vettel, Kimi Raikkonen, you're thinking, ah, Rosberg or Hamilton, well, you're in the championship fight here. So how how can I play on that? How can I gamble it? And if you're looking to pass Rosberg for, say, second... And you think, well, if I just show my nose, he's got to let me go. And they will know this. Also, if you are deliberately not racing the title rivals because you don't want to influence the title battle, then you're influencing the title battle because points earned at the last race of the season are worth this. Well, now they are anyway. They're worth the same as at the beginning of the season. This is the thing. these The drivers chasing the Mercedes owe it to both Hamilton and Rosberg to race them as normal. Because, yeah. But- Otherwise, unless... You know, all Rosberg needs to do then is make it to the end of the race and he's champion. Well, that's not really how it works, is it? You, you know, if he's taking it each race as it comes and he has to earn he has to earn every point he can, he has to earn the right to be champion. And I know there's obviously quite a lot of debate at the moment over whether he's going to be a deserving champion if he, if he does clinch it this weekend. But he, the other drivers can't make it easy for him. That would be ridiculous. And I think Christian Horner said during the Brazil weekend, he said, well, why don't we let the Mercedes drivers have a two-car race and then the rest of us will have a 20-car race after that? And I, I sort of agree with him. I'd much rather watch a 20-car race that Red Bull and Ferrari and maybe even Williams are fighting for. If Mercedes want to just drive around on their own, they can do that. Nobody will watch and no one will care that they've won a world championship. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? You, It's a race. It's part of a championship, but 
this race is about who wins the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix ultimately. Yeah, okay, the World Championship would be the big story, but it's still a Grand Prix and everyone owes it to themselves, to their employers, to the fans to, to race properly. Chances are it will be a Mercedes benefit because that's generally the, the pattern of things. Chances are they'll drive around first and second and it doesn't matter which order they're in really there because actually from Hamilton's perspective, he'd rather be ahead, but if he's just behind, he's still basically hoping for something to go wrong for, for Rosberg. And actually, you could argue that Hamilton might be a little bit better off sat behind Rosberg, making him think a little bit. You know, can you force a mistake from behind if you're darting around? You never know. The, the irony is that might actually make it more likely for him to drop it and lose a few places and suddenly he's fifth and and, and can't get back up. I, th- I think one of the things, I know this is going to be something that we we'll be talking about at length uh, after the race and whenever we, we come to do a season review podcast. But looking ahead to, to this weekend, is there anything that Rosberg can do this weekend to convince, I don't know where you two sit in terms of whether he deserves to be champion this year or not. For the sceptics, the people that think he, he hasn't earned it, is there anything he can do this weekend to, to win the over? If he went out dominated, you know. Yeah, win the race in a straight fight would be nice. I said a few weeks ago that when we got into this run of races where he just had to finish second or third, I sort of hoped that he'd at least win one or two to try and prove a point. So yeah, it would it would be a nice way to seal the championship and to prove a point, I think, if he can beat Hamilton in a straight fight and with nobody having any problems and Lewis can just get out of the car and say, the better man beat me on the day. I, that that would help. I mean, over time, over time, you're not going to remember the details of how he won the championship. You know, we look back at a list going back to 1950, and in the end, what you remember is the name of the man who won the championship. You eventually, you start to forget, you know, the way the last part of the season played out or whatever. So he won't, I'm sure he won't really care. You know, a world championship is a world championship. But it, for him, it would be nice, I think, if he could sort of seal it in a, in a convincing manner. Ideally, with an overtaking manoeuvre on Hamilton, that would be the, the ultimate. But it's not going to come down to one race. Pretty much regardless of what happens in Abu Dhabi, Lewis Hamilton has been the better Mercedes driver over the season. That's just a, a fact. That's not a, a British-tinged view or anything. It, Hamilton has had a little bit more bad luck. That's not to say Rosberg's done a bad job. He's done exactly what he needs to do. So I think always think deserving world champion is always a little bit of a, a dangerous way to, to look at it. There have been plenty of times when the best driver in a season has not won the world championship. In fact, 2014 when Lewis won the first of his titles for Mercedes, his second title overall, he wasn't rated as our number one driver of the season. He was uh, he was our number two driver. Daniel Ricciardo was ranked as number one. 2012, Fernando Alonso was the best driver of the season, not Sebastian Vettel. Vettel won the title. That's just the way things go sometimes. Well, go it doesn't back mean further. Look at, let's say, 93. You'd say Senna outperformed Prost, but Senna yeah. was in a much inferior car. So this is nothing new. I think the spotlight on reliability is quite new because... In, in years gone by, everybody had unreliability and it was just part of it. But it feels, because the cars are more reliable now, it feels like a bigger deal that someone has lost so many crucial results because of reliability. Well, you're going to end up with, because there's so little in the way of unreliability and car problems and retirements, retirements are proportionally bigger than they would be. If it was, if it was a difference between, well, I have six DNFs in a year to an engine failure, you have seven, that's not such a big swing as well. I have one massive blow up while leading in Malaysia and you don't have one at all. That's a, a bigger a bigger influence on on the title situation. Yeah, especially when they're as close as they are, you know. I mean it has it's it's a shame in a way that it's it's come down to to this sort of title decider where if you're hoping, you know, if you if you're on the Hamilton side of the fence, you are hoping for unreliability to decide it. I mean a winner takes all would would be epic. Unfortunately, we have that sort of the thrill of a final round shootout, but one that's sort of a little bit, sort of, well, all Rosberg really needs to do is secure the result he's done in, what, 18 of the 20 Grand Prix so far this season or something like that. No, exactly. It's a, it's a question of does something go wrong for Rosberg? I don't really think Hamilton can do a great deal. All he can try and do is go out and win the race, which, as I said, given Rosberg's Abu Dhabi form, certainly in qualifying, that's not a foregone conclusion. I think there have only been, I think, 10 times a driver has come from behind in the last race to win the championship having been behind in the points and only as I've said five times or so has someone come back from such a big deficit as Hamilton's got because it's not really in your hands the field's not close enough and as we discussed it's it's all about it's really about reliability or a mistake if Rosberg doesn't have unreliability and he doesn't make a mistake he's surely going to be world champion or if somebody else doesn't drive into him while being lapped for example do you think Hamilton will be looking back at what happened in his own rookie season uh, just how weird a title decider can be and when 
you know, even when the, the, the chips are absolutely down, you know, as it was for Kim Reichen in 07, it just comes completely out of left field and, and, and snatches the title. Are we in a situation where that's more, less likely? Do we need something? Because I remember in 08 thinking 07 was a really weird way for the for the title to be decided. And obviously 08 then completely eclipsed it. Um, I think I've changed my mind again on favourite title decider. Um, Do you need a moment? Have <laughs> yeah. you gone back to 1964 now? <laughs> yeah. I just think we've... That was a good title I, I think Lewis has obviously got first-hand experience of what can happen in a title decider. He's a three-time world champion. I know he's obviously not going to be want to be beat by his teammate, but I think he's probably going to go in with a pretty relaxed mindset. Would you agree? All he can do is drive about and get a good result. Yeah, Ultimately, the pressure's off him, really. You know, he can, he'll want to sign off with a win, obviously. He'll want to say, actually, do you know what? I've won the last four races, it would be. Because from that, po- from that point where the championship was out of his hands, in terms of there was, I think, yeah, it was four races from home where Rosberg could always finish second, which he's done three times now and he only needs one more. It was kind of out of Hamilton's hands. So from that point, he's done the perfect job. And he'll want to be able to say, well, do you know what? I, Other than that Malaysia engine failure, I did the job I had to. And he can at least have that as his, as his calling card, if you say. And you're right, he will know that things can go wrong. So he'll know if he's five laps from the end and Rosberg's sat happily in second, or even if Rosberg's sat ahead of him 10 seconds up the road and going to win, he'll be thinking, well, just keep going. You never know what, what will happen, because strange things do happen in title deciders. It would be good if... Um, if it- if Rosberg's going to clinch the title, you said about, you know, maybe put it on pole, win convincingly or or beat Hamilton in a straight fight and, and then take the win. I think we'd also put him 10-9 on wins for the season. So he would also be able to look back at that and go, yeah, do you know what? I took my opportunity when it came. That That's, you know, beating for victories overall. It's quite cool that they've, they've gone in. That's the only element of it that's proper head-to-head shootout, isn't it, is their level on wins. So. Are you now supporting Bernie Eccleston's medal system? Well, you... I think I joked about this to someone the other day. Like, you know, at the time, thought, I remember thinking that's absolutely ridiculous. And I've never really been in this situation where I've thought otherwise. Now I'm kind of thinking it'll be really cool. You know, nine golds each going into the final round. There is a scenario where the title can be won on count back to third places, which would be great fun if you can have it that close. Obviously, the closest title decider was 1984. Alan Prost, Nicky Lauda, half a point uh, victory for, for Nicky Lauda after the Portuguese Grand Prix. So it, it could be closer. It could be. No points in third places. Which are, there any permis- are there any permutations for if there is a classic Abu Dhabi downpour and the race is only runs a half distance and therefore half points are awarded? Uh, if half points are awarded, that's a bit of a disaster, isn't it? I think if Hamilton Hamilton would then need to win with Rosberg not scoring. It'll be 12 and a half. He's 12 points behind con- 12 and a half. by half a point. I must confess I've not considered the possibility <laughs> of it raining in Abu Dhabi, although I think it, I'm trying to remember whether it's there or Bahrain where, it has, where I haven't encountered some rain. I seem to remember in Bahrain also in the desert there was there was a brief bit of rain about half an hour before the start with massive raindrops but it only lasted about a second so uh, yeah <laughs> much longer than this analogy bucket on top of the pit, <laughs> that's probably, pit prob- probably what it was yeah so let, let's say rain isn't going to happen obviously while the world championship decider is the uh, is the big story and we'll be coming back to get everybody's predictions at the end of the podcast there are a few other things going on in formula one driver market has rumbled along interestingly some of the seats further down have been filled up since we last talked about the driver market on the podcast, Jolian Palmer has had his stint at Renault extended. Kevin Magnussen has gone to Haas. Marcus Ericsson has been confirmed for another season at Sauber. We've also got the question marks over whether Pascal Verline will be in at Sauber, what's happening to Felipe Nasser. Obviously, Scott, you wrote an interesting piece recently on Autosport Plus about Jolian Palmer and why he's been rather unfairly maligned this year. So I guess you think that he, he deserves to stay there and you're, you're pleased to see him, his efforts being rewarded. Yeah, he's, he's had that, that brilliant progression that you want to see uh, over, a, over a rookie season in which he's, he's, had, he's had a few setbacks. You know, Monaco, for example, was a pretty disastrous weekend across the board and then crashed out after about six seconds of green flag racing, uh, spinning away what would have been his first point of the season in Hungary. But, the, but he's... he's always dug deep he's always bounced back from those situations and in the last few races he's outperformed Kevin Magnussen who is a more traditional highly rated driver you know Palmer GP2 champion he's worked really hard to get to where he is he's he's obviously done well within the team I think the team have been quite impressed with his attitude he's, he's put the hours in away from the track he's basically done everything I think anyone who's probably worked with Magnussen kind of wants from him you think if you if Magnussen maybe had that that mindset or attitude that, that Palmer has, he could achieve some great things. And that's the difference between the two is that Palmer's got to the point where he's probably a more attractive option 
for, for Renault for next year. I'm not saying Palmer was definitely ahead of him on the, the shortlist because obviously Magnussen decided to go to go to Haas. They had a little bit of a disagreement about that during the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend where uh, where Magnussen pointed out that he effectively turned down Renault and Palmer poured a little bit of cold water on that and said he'd have been a bit stupid if he'd done that. So, uh, yeah, there's uh, there have been some interesting comments between those two in the the second half of the season. It's, it's what the, the other thing that's really good about Palmer staying in, in Formula 1 is he's not good for a soundbite. He's good for genuine comment you know that if you go to him about something he will just be honest and that's actually been quite refreshing this year he's he's spoken quite freely about the Renault situation I did wonder was a few races ago where he said he didn't feel that Renault was appreciative of the job him and Kevin had done in in a bit of a crap car and I thought oh maybe is that the sign of a driver on his way out of the team if he can freely criticize him like that and fair, fair play actually I think they've both been uh, they've both been quite good however I feel that whichever driver of the two was able to stay on neither of them really felt like they were first choice for the seat it seemed like Renault explored a lot of options and maybe ran out of options before deciding oh maybe we need to keep one of these guys that we've sort of overlooked up to now Magnussen if he did decide to turn them down I can see why he probably thought I'll stick around for a year and I'll be in this situation again in 12 months time where they're again looking for someone else to give the seat to so I can see why he's gone to Haas with probably a bit more security and believing that he'll get a few years in F1 without having to worry about his future sort of every September. So I think everybody wins in, in, in many ways here. You know, I'm glad they're both still on the grid. Magnussen feels like he's got himself out of a situation he wasn't that happy with. Palmer gets another shot. I'm pretty happy with that. It's not come at the cost of a talented young driver either because obviously Esteban Ocon has, has found a seat at Force India and I, and I wondered whether or not he would be deciding factor really once Hulkenberg was confirmed at, at Renault I thought oh that's probably it for, for Magnussen and Palmer now because surely Ocon's going to slip straight in there but obviously he's obviously Renault would have loved that wouldn't they a young exciting talented Frenchman I can only assume that they couldn't sort of pry him from the grasp and, of Mercedes and Ocon is genuinely good there's been a few people who've been sceptical about his performances since he dropped in after the August break compared to Pascal Wehrlein but two points there one Pascal Wehrlein is a very very good driver he's performed really well this year so he was never going to come in and just destroy him but Ocon has worked quite nicely. He's had some weekends where he's been quicker. Mexico, he had a suspension problem, which came to light after the race weekend. So he wasn't really able to, to compete. Brazil, in the race, if you look at the lap times under green flag running, Ocon was a second and a half a lap faster than Verlein, which is pretty remarkable. And Verlein, by his own admission, was having a real struggle. I'm not saying he's a second and a half faster than him, but that shows that you know Ocon has had some real high points. With, with Ocon, it's just a bit bizarre because you're not supposed to be able to step straight out of GP3 into DTM struggle at the back of the grid because obviously it's a high class field and then make your Grand Prix debut mid-season with a back of the back of the grid team and then make an immediate impact the fact that he was it took him what one event to sort of get on par with Verline that's that's really really good for 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 a rookie I'm amazed that there have been people that have sort of looked badly on him the fact is Mercedes will have all the data they need whether it's from Manor or from other things that those drivers are doing to make the correct decision there if they've decided that Ocon is the man to back, then so be it. Obviously, Verline, I think, said a race or two ago that it, Toto Wolf said it was a Force India decision, not a Mercedes decision. I find that slightly hard to believe. But again, Force India have tested both of those drivers. So maybe they've got their own data and opinions. Well, we should, we should add, they've continued to insist that in Brazil that it was a Force India decision. And Force India certainly had a big part in, in that decision. But let's say if Mercedes felt the Verline was definitely the horse to back, I'm sure they'd have... They'd have pushed it. My understanding is that from what they've seen, they rate both of them. They are both very good drivers. But from what they've seen from the testing, from the mana data, etc., there's the feeling that Ocon is maybe the guy who's got that little bit more about him. And that's not, and that doesn't mean like in a binary world of one of them's brilliant, the other one's dreadful. They are both very good drivers. And Verline, hopefully, looks very more unlikely he's going to stay at Manor now that Manor's dropped to 11th in the championship, which is a big financial blow, I think. Last year, 10th place in the championship was worth $13.5 million. So it would be in a similar ballpark that Manor have lost for this year. And he said that was going to be significant potentially in terms of whether he stayed or not. But Verline has a good chance of ending up slotting in at Sauber, which would be good. They should both be in Formula 1 next year. I think that would be an upgrade as well. Um, Verline replacing Nasa at Sauber. I think we've seen enough of Nasa now to maybe suggest that, you know, if there's, I'd, I would rather Verline had another chance than Nasa got another year alongside Ericsson at Sauber. Nasa drove wonderfully in Brazil, but he's at a point in his career where he doesn't need to be putting in wonderful performances every now and again. To be honest, ever since he graduated from Formula BMW Europe as champion, 
he's not reached the heights that were expected. And you look at him, you think, you know, you are you are a properly good driver, but if you can't string everything together, where are you going? It's a similar kind of locality to Esteban Gutierrez in terms of that performance profile. You think, actually, Esteban, you are quick, and you can do nine-tenths of it, and then you just don't quite get it all together. And that's why he's got every chance of dropping out of Formula 1. Two things about and about Nazar. First, he's basically the opposite of Palmer. He's a driver who... Well, and they like, fought over the GP2 time. Yeah, exactly. He, he's, he's just sort of flatlined in terms of his development, whereas Palmer's kept going. Second thing, there's been a bit of a sort of maybe kick back on the idea that there won't be a Brazilian driver on the grid next year if Nazar drops off. And I saw something earlier where I, someone said on Twitter that you know all these amazing Brazilian drivers that have raced in the sport before and it's such a shame that there won't be one on the grid. It doesn't really matter, does it? There aren't any good ones, any drivers that are good enough at the moment to be racing in Formula 1. So well, why does it matter that there aren't any on the grid? The tap has run a little bit dry in Brazil of recent years and those in Brazilian motorsport are aware of that, so... You know, These things happen in the cycles, though, don't they? It happened to France in the past. And, you know, if you think how dry Germany's spell was before the sort of rash of drivers came through from there, it, it does happen. And, it, you know, it could happen to Britain soon as well. It's just uh, one of those things. Am I, am I about to make myself look like a massive idiot when I say, apart from Giovinazzi, what's going on with Italy at the moment? That's been the case for a while. Italy, obviously, haven't had as many drivers coming through. One of the reasons I've seen suggested is that bike racing's massive there. Another reason is that Ferrari kind of wipes out everything in terms of motorsport is Ferrari. And Ferrari hasn't been that keen on Italian drivers more traditionally. They've got more on their junior scheme now. But, you know, there hasn't been a, a full-time Italian driver in Ferrari for quite some time. We've seen stand-ins, but, but nothing more than that. And, and that's just what happens. If you've only got 20, 22 drivers, you're never going to have an even distribution nationality-wise. And obviously we're well stocked with Belgians now if you count Max Verstappen as a Belgian because he's got he has dual nationality you can argue he's more Belgian than Dutch we have Stoffel van Dorn next year as well so two of them are going to be from Belgium and Belgium obviously is uh, is not a big motorsport country but it's just ebbs and flows doesn't it and then you get certain levels of interest in different countries and whether drivers can get backers it's just it's just the way it happens one, one thing I would say you mentioned that it, it could happen to, to Britain soon we've obviously got this problem mentioned there with Brazilian drivers there was uh, a Brazilian driver on the podium in Macau and the, the young Brits on display in the Formula 3 Grand Prix last weekend did, did quite well. So maybe maybe there'll be a bit of a bit of a dry spell for a few years, but there are definitely some some on the radar. And I think the point is that, you know, unlike NASA, you 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 need you need a driver to be there on merit, not just because he comes from a country where there happens to be quite a few good drivers that have been there the, in the past. The big problem is is that Brazil is and this was a Brazilian who was telling me this when I was out there last week, that Brazilians really, really do follow Brazilian athletes in sport, more so even than a lot of other countries. And actually, the impact of having a Brazilian driver on the grid, or the necessity to, is actually greater than it might be in some other countries. You know, if, if we didn't have a British driver on the grid, yeah, interest in the UK would go down, but it would still hold reasonably firm, whereas Brazil, supposedly, it could drop, drop out more. Uh, but mentioning Macau, obviously one driver who's not in the driver market mix, who's an interesting case to talk about, is Antonio Felix da Costa. He won the Macau Grand Prix for the second time on his comeback to Formula 3. He raced in Formula 3 full-time about 50 years ago. Slight exaggeration, but obviously he's come back in, got a late call-up from Carlin, enjoyed himself. He chased down Sergio Setkamara, who led, overtook for the victory, and then led Felix Rosenqvist, another returnee home. Led to a few people saying, well, it's a travesty, Antonio Felix da Costa isn't in Formula 1. And certainly at a time, a few years ago, I think we'd have all said, yeah, this, this guy's got a bit of magic about him. He's definitely going to be in a Toro Rosso sooner rather than later. But he didn't, ultimately, he didn't do what he needed to do. I mean, Glenn, you were covering him in Formula Renault 3.5 when he didn't get the drive. Yep. With Toro Rosso, Daniel Kvyat got it. And then when there was a second Toro Rosso drive that came along, it went to Carlos Sainz Jr. So what did you see of De Costa at that point? Well, he his star power probably peaked at the end of 2012 when he did a part season replacing Lewis Williamson in the Red Bull Arden car in World Series. Um, but that meant, yeah, we, we went into 2013 and he was the man everyone was expected to have to beat to become champion. And as a Red Bull junior, he was beaten to the title by two McLaren juniors in Kevin Magnussen and Stoffel Van Dorn. And it just it just never really clicked in, in that year. It was probably partly down to the team, but also maybe partly down to him as well. 
it seems strange to say these sort of things, but he didn't have a great weekend in Austria on Red Bull's home turf when Helmut Marko was watching. And Helmut Marko is the sort of person who will give something like that a bit of weight when it comes to making his decisions. And yeah, Daniel Kvyat, a year after Da Costa looked like the man with the momentum, Kvyat was the man with the momentum having, it has to be said, demolished science in GP3 where they were teammates. And, it, you know, he got the gig. And it's, it is a big shame for Da Costa. Uh, he's, you know, he had a pretty good career since with BMW and DTM and now in Formula E where he's in Scott's world. Um, but I'd, I'd say that Formula E grid and maybe the DTM grid as well are littered with drivers who could have got could have got F1 call-ups if, if everything had fallen their way at the right time. I've been waiting patiently for my opportunity to talk about Formula E in this podcast. I was wondering if I was going to get, going to get one. Uh, I can turn your mic down. <laughs> we've, uh, we've De Costa leading a Formula E 1-2 in Macau. Uh, it, was, it was quite nice to see because a driver like Rosenfist, who didn't get as far up the ladder uh, conventional single-seaters as, as De Costa did, he was a guy who obviously stuck around in Formula 3 for, for a little while. Mate, I don't know a little whether, while. <laughs> I wonder if his like, stock drops as a result, but he was just a guy who he, he literally never got an opportunity to, to do anything else. And one of the things that was, was quite good about Macau with De Costa winning and Rosenfist finishing second is that at no point during the weekend, I watched the qualification race and the main race. De Costa won both of them. Rosenfist drove extremely well in both of them. Young Cadea was in it as well. At no point was I sat there going, this is an absolute travesty. I can't believe that they're here robbing the young guys of an opportunity to win a major event. Oh, this is a farce and all that. It just makes me realise just how much of a joke the Nelson Piquet Jr. Poe incident was. Not like barring him from it because, <clears throat> barring Piquet from Poe because it would bring the championship into disrepute or something like that. It was, it was mega. I think I bet all of the, the guys that were on that grid at Macau last weekend are trying to get to Formula 1. I bet they learned so much from being able to, you know, Tete Kamara was in the same team as De Costa. Uh, Rosenbiss was at back at Prima. So I, I really don't see what the problem is. That that I know De Costa says he's not going to go back again. I don't know what Rosenbiss' plans are. But I, just, I, I think that adds something to those sort of events. And it gives the young guys a yardstick. They might not have got to Formula 1, but they're probably as good as you can get without quite making it, aren't they? It, it is a standalone race. So from that in that regard, there's nothing wrong with having that. You know, you wouldn't want... De Costa doing a full European F3 season. There's no point in that, and nobody would suggest doing that. But having one-offs like that, whether it's him there, PK at Poe, makes, makes a lot of sense. But it was good to see De Costa reminding everyone of that ability that is there, but that perhaps doesn't shine as consistently as it, as it should do. The interesting thing coming back to the topic of him not being an F1 now. So I remember speaking at length to Helmut Marko about the decision after it had been made, and he said the big difference that made the decision to put Kvyat into Formula 1 over De Costa and Sainz at that time was that Kvyat responded much much better to problems and adversity the other two seemed to struggle a bit more and took their eye a bit off the ball so that was the other thing that people didn't see and maybe there's a little bit of that with De Costa now in the fact that he doesn't get the consistency of results and hasn't for a long time that we know he's got the ability to perhaps he's just one of those drivers who when everything runs nicely and smoothly he can show what he can do as he did in Macau but if he gets a little bit of adversity, things go a bit awry. And you see a lot of drivers like this. You know, you have a bad session, your progression during a weekend goes badly. Sometimes things spiral away from you and you just can't get them back. There are Grand Prix winners that fall into that category where everything has to be right on the day for them and they can't turn a weekend around and that sort of it's thing. Pe- this is what people at Toyota, for example, used to say about Yano Trulli. It just took a bad session just to kind of derail him, you know, a stunningly fast driver when everything was right. He turned in some fantastic qualifying laps. His, his second place in the Japanese Grand Prix in Toyota's last year was an absolutely breathtaking drive in terms of its quality, but he wasn't capable of achieving that. And that's what makes the great drivers the greats because by and large, week in, week out, they deliver. Do you think that we'll uh, have a NFP1 disaster in Abu Dhabi this weekend to derail one of the title favourites or title contenders? It's possible, isn't it? You know, you can, uh, you can end up with a driver parked at the side of the track after a couple of laps with, a, with an ERS failure or something. It, it can happen. And that will have an impact in terms of, of building up pressure. But obviously, they all know how to recover from that. And I haven't seen many signs from either of those drivers in terms of that element of the weekend of not coming back. Things can get away from Rosberg in races if things start to go wrong. The German Grand Prix was an example of that, how mistakes multiply, but... Chances are it's just going to be down to a straight fight. Who's going to make the mistakes? Whose car doesn't blow up? Which brings us back to the predictions 
So rather than just asking everyone for their predictions, does anyone here think Lewis Hamilton is going to be able to win the championship? Percentage chance of Lewis Hamilton winning because that's the less likely possibility. What should we give him? To answer your first question, do we give him a chance? No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, To answer the percentage question, 30? Mathematicians would probably suggest you are giving him a chance there. That is technically a chance. <laughs> well, yeah. You, you you corrected the question and changed my <laughs> Moving the goalposts. Yeah, I That's think... what journalists do all the time. I think 30%, 40% if you're feeling generous. But it's, it's not... He doesn't go in there with a sort of 50-50 chance by any stretch, does he? Like, Rosberg's the overwhelming favourite. Well, if you want to put it into context, there have been 20 races so far this year. And just counting up, there have been 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 occasions when Rosberg has not delivered a result in the 20 races this year that would give him the championship this weekend. Is that Either relative Hamilton to Hamilton or he just hasn't just overall, finished Just the overall position. Retired in Spain, Mercedes wipeout, that would still give him the title. Seventh in Monaco, that was a poor weekend for him. Fifth in Canada, fourth in Austria, which to an extent we can discount because if Hamilton tries to pass Rosberg on the last lap of the race, I think Rosberg, chances are, will just let him go rather than doing a really, really ham-fisted attempt to go back past. And then Germany, obviously, where... Rosberg's race unraveled after a bad start. So well, there you go. Then he's purely, got you've got five, five in twenty. He's not delivered the results. So twenty-five percent. You could say twenty-five percent chance. Add an extra five percent because it's a title decider, and and Glenn wins. Any, anything can happen yes. in Grand Prix racing, and it usually does. I think it comes down to what's the percentage chance of him having a mechanical problem. I think thirty. That, I've already said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've, we've got that. We've got that. But it, I suppose, if Hamilton were to win the title, that's almost the the most poetic way of doing it. I just, you just got in the mind kind of a photograph of Hamilton driving past a burning Mercedes engine or something. That would put, kind of be the, the just way to do it. But ultimately, I think what we really want to see is a good story to end the championship. Ideally, you kind of want something to happen. It'd be great if something, it'd be great if a curveball could be thrown at Rosberg. We could so just have, have some kind of doubt. A bit. So just, even just if he does doubt. come back to win it, if it's just, you know, if something, something goes wrong at the start or something goes wrong in qualifying and, he, and just to, just to create a bit of excitement. I honestly don't mind which one of them wins it, but I just hope there's something to keep people interested rather than just two silver cars driving around well, ulti- the front. Ultimately, the 2008 finale was so good, not because of who was involved. If it had been the other way around, if Felipe Massa had passed Timo Glock at the last 20 seconds of the race to win the championship and deny that Hamilton, it would still be this incredible story that everyone harks back to, regardless of what your nationality. So I think that's what you want to see. You know, it's great there's a final round decider, but... Realistically, it's going to need something extraordinary to happen for there to be an interesting scenario. You know, there are scenarios where Rosberg has to nick seventh place or sixth place on the last lap or something, but I've got really vanishingly un- small chance. I've of got that. a really underwhelming image in my head of Rosberg having a first lap accident or something, and then Hamilton cruising around in front the whole race, and then developing a mechanical problem late on and fading to fourth or something like that, where you just sort of think. Well, that's just the most underwhelming way for this title to be decided. I mean, it would create a bit of drama if he sort of if it was a gradual thing, but you just don't want there to be that that proper. Oh, this is a. You don't want basically a however long the Grand Prix is, the the whole race to play out, but the title's been decided like in the first couple of laps because something underwhelming's happened. To uh, to ask a better question than your question, Ed. Oh, I see. My question's not good yeah, enough. Yeah, I, I'd be better at your job than you. You can are. ask me who's going to finish ninth. Who is going to finish ninth? Uh, Nico Hulkenberg. Okay, good shout. It'd be nice if Verline did get Manna back ahead of Yeah, Salmon. that's true. My original question before um, the ninth place one came up was, is this Rosberg's only legitimate shot at becoming world champion? Possibly. Ultimately, we don't know how good the Mercedes will be next year. There's every chance. But even if it is dominant, you know, what are the chances of Hamilton having... Well, We've already established that Hamilton yeah, is the that, better driver. So what are the chances of him having so many significant problems again. But this way, you would, you would stake money on Hamilton being in the last round title decider again in the future. You wouldn't necessarily guarantee it with Rosberg. So That's as close yeah. to as a yes as I think I th- we're going to get. I think, you know, you could, to be honest though, you could have said in 14 that was going to be his only chance. And it might have been like a Mark Webber-esque situation where you get one proper shot, it goes wrong, and then you don't get another one. But Rosberg has, to his credit, been able to kind of come back and the thing I do like about Rosberg is he does keep kind of coming back, although sometimes races get away from him. He's quite good at kind of resetting, learning. He's, I feel he's always sort of coming at Hamilton and sort of saying, right, well, I've just found a little bit more. What have you got? And Hamilton's normally got that little bit of extra pace there and generally has 
a little bit more magic behind him. But Rosberg does have a remarkable ability to keep hauling himself up and saying, no, I'm just going to get a bit better, a bit better, a bit better. I do think that he's been a lot closer to Hamilton this year than probably was through 2015. You know, if full team was a relatively close fight, 15 didn't feel like it was that close. And this year has been closer again. And yeah, I'd say over their time together as teammates, Rosberg's probably done a better job than I would have expected when they were first paired up and credit to him. But it feels a little bit now or never for me with him. The next few days will decide whether Nico Rosberg becomes the 33rd person to be crowned world champion or if Lewis Hamilton can snatch his third consecutive title and his fourth overall. You can follow all of the news and updates throughout the weekend on autosport.com, while Autosport magazine, with an in-depth look at McLaren Honda's prospects for 2017, is out on Thursday. Thanks to my guests, Glenn Freeman and to Scott Mitchell. We'll be back next week to look back on what should be a thrilling title decider. Six AM by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a world. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.